0: You're listening to Alternative Thinking Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today, we're speaking with two market strategists one with a major Canadian bank's asset management arm, and another that delivers wealth management portfolios to investors via asset allocation as expressed through ETFs. We'll talk about the current and previous market crises and how one's investment process is integral to keeping a level head through these upheavals and taking advantage of opportunities as they might present themselves.
1: James Buran is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca.
0: Welcome, today's Tuesday, April 28th, and I'm James Beron with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today, we're speaking with Michael Sager with CIBC Asset Management, and Tyler Morty with 4 Global Asset Management. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. I'll uh, start with you, uh, Tyler, please.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us, James. Um, uh, so just starting with our, our firm background, so the firm was started in 2001, and the firm was kind of founded on the belief that uh, global asset classes were the most important decision. What I mean by that is that you know we we live in an industry with a lot of stocks pickers. I'd say ninety percent of uh, folks on on base trading mm-hmm. stocks, and we felt that picking the right asset class, and this is borne out by academic research and so on and so forth, uh, would be the most important thing to to get right in the in the uh, the new millennia. And lo and behold, we've had like a, you know now two global financial crises, and one in two thousand eight, and one, <laughs> in one this year. And uh, that, that, that view has borne itself out. We are the first to adopt the ETF vehicle, the exchange traded fund in more of an active sense. So because our focus is on asset allocation and being active on that side, rather than being active on the individual security selection, um, we are the first to, uh, to build uh, truly globally diversified portfolios exclusively with ETFs that you could do that as of 2003. And so like our firm now mm-hmm. provides um, global strategies, our specialty is sort of ex-North America, global strategies to financial advisors, institutions, and getting them to think about, okay, well, we're entering, like, for example, right now, which we'll get into, we're entering this post-pandemic world. What are the most important asset classes and themes and super trends, as we call them, to get right in, in the coming period? And so we really, we sort of function as an outsourced uh, global CIO for that. So in um, my own background, I, I started in the business in, in London, England with Deutsche Bank. Hmm. Um, at one point, a, a national champion, and now it seems more like a national embarrassment, but uh, still was, was a good employer, still has some uh, good functions there. Yeah,
0: that was a place to be, yeah.
2: Place to be, yeah, exactly. And so I was a an anal- macro analyst there, and then I, I was a, a research analyst at Four I was actually employee number two, went to research director and then ultimately to my role today, which is as president and CIO. So uh, we're growing strong and 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 still uh, still pushing that same philosophy, which is which is uh, you know getting the global right.
0: Yeah. So you're kind of born post this that that other well, I guess maybe in the middle of that other crisis, so the TMT crisis, and and uh, I, know, I know the research is big, of I think it's like I don't know if it's 95 percent of returns come from the assets asset allocation, and then the rest comes from the specific stocks or, or industries and that and um, and right. using ETFs is a pretty pretty yeah. good, great way to get like clean exposure to it.
2: And what it does um, really too, James, is it, it provides a nice offset to, you know, you've got very like, especially here in Canada, you've got very traditional balanced portfolios, you know, the 60% stocks and 40% bonds, and you've got a lot of uh, portfolios that are are pretty domestic heavy. So we're, we're a good offset to traditionally balanced or domestic centric portfolios. and you know, the way to do that is to kinda of get your global right as as I've mentioned.
0: So do you have like is it still a sixty forty for you and just happens to be global, or is it like a lot of stock or opportunistic? How do you how do you create these portfolios? Um
2: yeah, we've got we've got three lineups, but um the, the global ones each have a, a specific focus. So we've got um you know, like a, a global income, a classically global balance and a global growth, which are completely, you know, there's there's, there's literally 0% Canadian exposure as a starting point. And then we've got a, a focus series, which focuses on particular parts of the world. Like uh, we've got an emerging market focused, a global ex North America focus, and then a less constrained mandate that's um, called a special opportunities focus. And so each of these, you know, if you think about the types of active decisions you're making, because we're not stock pickers, we're picking, you know, f- for global income as an example, is is, is kind of the, the perfect um, subject to talk about because public enemy number one these days is is low interest rates. And so, you know, I always think I'm always thinking for clients, how do we create, uh, how do we, like, what problem are we solving? And the problem we're solving right now is that you used to be able to create a a, a reasonably low risk portfolio with a reasonable income to secure, you know, the retirement uh, futures for, for our clients now, you know, that's, that's almost impossible doing what you used to do, which is, you know, investing exclusively in bonds. So. Um what we do in the types of decisions we're making is, okay, if we're going after income um, and the, that problem that we're solving, what other asset classes can we look into? So there's things like rates, there's dividend paying stocks, there's emerging market debt. and there's a whole host of things that uh, that can get that you can sort of build into a global income portfolio to give you that target exposure, but also not moving out too far on the risk curve. And keeping risk to a constri- to an acceptable level. So, I mean, the way we describe hmm. it to to uh, prospective clients is that we're we're because we're in this uh, financial repressive era where where interest rates are near zero in most parts of the world, um, one has to take a more eclectic income approach. And so, what better way to do that than to look at all these other asset classes and put put them together in a in an income oriented portfolio, but never compromise on the um, the free lunch, which is in finance, which is still diversification, and so a lot of people would right. say, like if you ta- if you think about that classic portfolio, sixty percent stocks, forty percent income, a lot of people will say, well, that forty percent income that we used to invest in Canadian bonds no longer provides decent exposure, so I'm going to flip it all the way to dividend-paying stocks. Well, that totally changes the nature of the risk of of your portfolio. Like in other words, it increases the risk. And so what we say is, no, you can you can include um other asset classes that are not as risky as equity which provide you income but do it in a diversified manner and keep the as i said keep the risk to acceptable levels
0: cool i got another couple quick questions maybe so do you you said you're, at, you're active with ETFs do you use typically the beta static ones or do you do you use active actively traded ETFs in those portfolios and uh like, uh, Do you hate mutual funds? Like, <laughs> Would mutual funds work as well as ETFs? Or is it just yeah. that you guys just chose it and it just seems to be the stream- a streamlined version?
2: I don't know if we hate mutual funds, but I think the market hates <laughs> them. You saw March had the largest ever outflow from, from mutual funds uh, just this last month. So no, I mean, that's a, it's a very good question. So keep in mind our focus philosophically is on getting the asset class right. That's where we think we can add all the alpha, if you will. Um, so being in the right asset class is more important than getting the underlying individual securities right. So, you know, for example, we, we don't, if you're, if you like the U.S. banks, we're not going to pick like, you know, JP Morgan over another uh, U.S. bank. So generally with that view, with that very, very top down view, we're looking for the purest beta exposure that we can find. So for example, in the, to go on with the U.S. banking example, um, we would use a, a market cap weighted ETF that has a low MER. And. Plenty of liquidity and and so on and so forth. Um, we've we've never right. used an actively managed ETF. In other words, where you outsource your active decisions to another money manager, that just hasn't been our style. Simply because then you you lose control of of um, you know your transparency and visibility on what you're actually owning underneath there. We have, we have encroached into some of these, um, You know, there's been so many names for them, whether it's Smart Beta or Fundamental Weighted, or I don't even know what they, they called. it. I, I, it's, it's all smart marketing, I know that, but um, the one thing- Yeah, Smart's we, a
0: great marketer, that's for sure.
2: Yes, exactly. The one thing we've done is like, I'll give you an example recently what we hold. So um, we like the high yield bond space in the US, but um, there are certain flaws with the market cap index there. For example, when you construct a market cap based junk bond, uh, ETF, you're effectively uh, throwing the most money to the companies that have most mismanaged their finances. In other words, the one, the ones with the most debt in general. Now you have to normalize that for the size of the company, of course. But um, you know, there's a fundamental weighted um, high yield bond ETF out there with a the ticker symbol PHB that that just kind of detaches away from the market cap. And so what we say is that you're effectively getting a higher quality quote, unquote, high bond, high yield bond uh, ETF through. You know, uh, mixing up the, the, um, the weightings of those really, really uh, indebted corporations and sort of moving away from exposures to them. So
0: we've yeah, we've, we've yeah. encroached
2: into those those areas, but generally it's a, um, you know, we're picking countries, themes, sectors um, and all sorts of any sort of trends, but sticking to the market caps.
0: Cool. And then, Michael, for your side, you have uh, like CIBC Asset Management, one of the larger ones in Canada. Uh, this diverse range of, of funds, and I'm not sure if you actually do have ETFs, but let's talk about and they, they manage accounts and in, institutional clients and uh, retail and just every everything I think under the sun. What uh, what are you doing there? And maybe maybe give us a bit of your background as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, we we do have ETFs, but let's focus, you know, more broadly on. The strategies in, in the alternative space, you know, CIBC Asset Management yeah. has been managing um, alternative strategies for a couple of decades or more for both, uh, as you suggest, both institutional clients, but also uh, retail investors. Um, a couple of the, the flagship solutions we offer are um, in active currency, um, currency is a as is an asset class. Mm -hmm. Also in the the multi-asset absolute return space. So we are very much macro investors. And we see both of these solutions, we see them as complements. I think, you know, to some of Tyler's points as well, complements to traditional uh, asset classes, traditional long-only strategies, additive in terms of return to those mm-hmm. strategies but also diversifying so um yeah we've uh, we've got a rich pedigree myself again similar to tyler i started uh, my career in london england too in my case it was with the bank of england and then uh, uh JP mm-hmm. morgan um uh, at, at COBC i'm i'm a client portfolio manager So my role is to uh, represent the investment teams' clients, so that the investors stay in front of their screens for most of their working day. You know, one of the Mm -hmm. biggest negatives on investment performance is that investors get distracted. So I'm here at you know CIBC to make sure they don't get distracted. I work with clients, solutioning, um, Mm -hmm. figuring out what works best and how for the clients um the investors focus on the performance of the strategy so that's a that's a great uh it's a great combination it, yeah i think it works pretty well for for our clients
0: yeah it's really difficult to do both um yeah and you mentioned uh you're doing so it's with a multi-asset fund this is interesting is it what kind of weighting do you have, like, per for the different types of asset classes? And uh, I don't know if after that Tyler wants to chime in on kind of his kind of weightings. So I just kind of want to co- compare the the types of themes that you guys are using in your portfolios, if I may.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If I go first, you know, there, there's a, a difference. You know, we need to differentiate between the long term, you know, rolling three years, um, mm. and then more tactic you know we're focused on uh, equities bonds currencies commodities so over that rolling three years on average we'd expect the risk contribution from each of those assets equal there's opportunity similar um, risk adjusted return to be generated in each of those asset classes so roughly equal combination over the long term but in the in the short term opportunities are going to differ. So to to be able to tilt risk between asset classes or between different strategies, you know, in our multi-asset product, we include both beta, smart beta, you guys were already talking about, but also more idiosyncratic alpha. So to be able to identify which one of those buckets or which one of the asset classes has got the highest it turns over, say, the next quarter or two. So it really differs whether we're talking about you know, some sort of steady state long term or whether we're looking at the next one to three months, something like that, and, and what opportunities the market is, is currently presenting, what winners and losers in terms of strategy mm-hmm. asset classes are out there right now.
0: So what's, what's the kind of the opportunities and trends that you're seeing now?
1: Well, it, it's changed a lot because, you know, if you think about only six weeks ago yeah. where there was a massive scramble for liquidity and I think most people were at least focused on the worst case markets would continue plummeting, economies would never come back. You know, it's a caricature, but... You know the markets were were scrabbling around in a really stressed state, where defence and capital protection were were in. Um, so in that world, it was it was much more about reducing risk into much more playing defence, long gold, long insurance type option strategies. You know that was six, five, four weeks ago. And now. Fast forward to the last two or three weeks where markets have become relatively calmer. We've seen more two-way risk. We've obviously had a big uh, risk rally. Not sure all of it's sustainable, but we've had a risk rally. Mm -hmm. Um, So now the focus in a a multi-asset strategy for us focuses much more to thinking about uh, winners and losers and how we can source those. And again... Thinking about asset classes, winners and losers in asset classes, Mm -hmm. and that's probably defined by the proximity to policymakers. Think about the the Fed or the Bank of Canada is underwriting commercial paper or uh, credit markets. Think about how the Fed is signaling uh, a wish for the dollar to weaken. Um, And then it's, you know, winners and losers in terms of Economies, uh, those with stronger balance sheets, those with proximity to Asian economies that are already opening up from uh, the post-virus shutdown and those which are going to be a few weeks yet. Um, oil importers versus oil exporters, you know, all of these facets uh, are going to inform about uh where to allocate risk in the multi-asset strategies? We, as we continue to move forward,
0: yeah, it really sounds like your uh, your experience at the Bank of England with very macro, and uh, of course they were focused on macroprudential um, uh, factors that are affecting the markets now. So, where where do you think the winners might be, and then the losers? And we'll we'll go over to Tyler.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think a, a lot of the winners are going to be. In, in terms of economies or countries, it's most likely in Asia are the winners. You know, you yeah. think about sectors that are likely to um, benefit from um, what we're seeing develop right now. Technology is probably one of them. You know, our podcast today is indicative of mm-hmm. a greater use of technology. Well, Korea, Taiwan are handily placed. Um, They've also got relatively more capacity to support growth over the next few months. Um, Stronger balance sheets, whether it's because they have uh, lower debt, for instance. Uh, They're getting a big boost from uh, the oil shock. Right, yeah. Winning countries, a lot of them are going to be in Asia. Losers, well, Canada's probably one of the losers. Uh oh know contrast with what I just said, um, stretch balance sheets, lots of debt, lots of leverage. It's a high cost oil producer. Now one saving grace is it's it's attached to the US and the US has of course probably seen the most policy stimulus. But Asia, yeah. Canada is an interesting one in in asset class space, you know, think Commercial paper or credit volatility are closer to the thinking of policymakers than perhaps equity markets. So a desire to dampen volatility seems to be front and center. A, uh, a desire to prevent what's currently a liquidity crisis becoming a solvency crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So underwrite. Uh, commercial debt, underwrite corporate, um, don't underwrite equities, at least yet. So again, we can differentiate. Maybe you can put those together. So uh, strong emerging market credits in fixed income um, would be one obvious place. Um, you know, selling equity volatility, can, you know, it's come down a long way, but Probably still got some more to go because I would have thought in mm-hmm. the long term policymakers are probably going to try and continue to dampen volatility more broadly. So those are those are some of the ideas.
0: How about you, Tyler? What are you seeing uh, in and adding to your portfolio or making changes as the the winds have have shifted here?
2: I was trying to find something to disagree with Michael when he was speaking there, but uh, I'm finding it <laughs> rather difficult. So we'll try to make this more interesting. There's a the couple subtle inflections I'd make. I think, you know, like if you if you look back over the last little bit, um, you know, what was unfolding throughout March and then through it is unfolding now is, is, is been pretty f- neatly framed by the media and certainly by, you know, anecdotal conversations and that type of thing, which is, I think what the market is trying to do is differentiate this between a transitory shock or something that leads itself into a longer lasting depression.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: sort of a, a temporary liquidity and demand shock followed by a return to trend growth. Or a longer running change in trend driven by you know the bursting of a, a financial imbalance or whatever it is, and you know I would say to date the evidence strongly suggests that this is more of a technical recession, simply for one big reason, and we've we've written extensively on this uh, on our website, but what 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 we identified though though is that if you're if you're in that latter camp where you're thinking there's a longer lasting depression, mm-hmm. then the onus is on you to point to the major financial imbalance which has burst as a result of of this um pandemic and so you know you kind of have to think pre-virus and see what 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 was the environment um like and where did the the virus on which terrain did the, the virus land upon and you know we would suggest that the terrain didn't look like you know periods um prior to other major financial bubbles like uh you know 2007 or 1999 or even 1929 I mean first of all the 30s mm-hmm. is completely different because the policy response has been so enormous um, in you know the late 90s obviously had a major buildup in um, you know had a full-blown stock market bubble major buildup in uh, tech capital overspending and then 2007 I mean point to any any area of the world and you, you basically had some some form of bubble so we didn't go into the virus mm-hmm. with those financial excesses and, and capital overspending. And you know, those those are everyone's sort of pointing quickly to the to the 2008 as as an apt comparison. But you know, again, that was a bursting of a major asset bubble, and it 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 changed the trajectory of the trend growth and it had years of financial deleveraging afterward. And we were still feeling those effects to, to some degree. And so all of those prior episodes have the uh, in common that they had deep deep financial ban- imbalances that took years to work out. Now the jury is still out of course, but um, if this is short, like a one to two to max three quarter affair, then there is a there's a pretty good probability that we can get back to trend growth, so that's kind of where we were we were landing with it. in In March, we took on the most risk within the parameters of our portfolio that we could. So we we had the fortuitous timing of a mm. of a rebalance that took place on March 24th. Nice you know, market bottom on March 23rd. You don't always get it that right, as as many money managers know. But I think you know to Michael's comments, I think he's he's bang on with the what you're trying to do is you're trying to include asset classes that will create I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, you know, you're trying to create a resiliency or, you know, you, there's this term, this term been thrown around anti-fragile yeah, um, yeah. Proper, property yeah. of portfolios. And so whether you agree with, you know, my comments that it's going to be more of a transitory shock or not, the, your, your focus shill, still should be on portfolio structure and getting all those elements right. And so we're we're very much like, um, you know, Michael's Michael's firm, where we're focused on, Yes, some you know of the mainstream stocks and bond categories, but things like commodities and currencies, and 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 a lot in emerging markets, which is becoming very very interesting. Um, and the neat thing about you know specifically probably currencies, if I can just spend uh, 30 seconds on that, currencies yeah. are my favorite asset class because there's, there's not a lot of active users in the currency markets, even though it's the largest and most liquid asset class in the world. Uh, Most of the users are are what you'd kind of consider passive investors who, you know, mainly are multinational businesses that are, that are, um, you know, aiming to hedge their, their revenues and costs. Yeah. Like people Um, cashing
0: traveler's checks, eh?
2: Yeah, exactly. But you know, Currencies are very much like um, stocks and bonds. Like I, I remember when Canada was doing so well in the run-up to, you know, the big commodity blow-off in sort of 2012 to 2014, and you know, our stock market was amongst uh, the economists had an article where we were the favorite, the most favorite stock market in the world. Our bond market was was soaring and doing well. And lo and behold, the Canadian dollar was like hitting levels like 110 and forecasts of 130. So, mm-hmm. you know, just like stocks, bonds, and other classes, currencies can become overlook overloved and overowned. And they can become underloved and under underowned. And I, uh, you know, back to the back to the terrain that the this this virus landed upon. Um, you know, we've had ten years of outperformance with the US stock market. Um, you know, and starting points are always important. In 2009, the U.S. currency was very cheap. The U.S. stock market was very cheap. And the Fed was doing all sorts of unorthodox uh, policy moves that we'd never heard of. I mean, QE started in, in Japan, but we had not heard of um, some of these things. And so that starting point was very good for um, U.S. outperformance relative to other asset classes in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward to today, we have Kind of the opposite situation we have an expensive us dollar we have an expensive us stock market and we have expectations towards the towards the us economy to, to continue to be the safest house in the neighborhood the cleanest shirt whatever whatever metaphor you want to use and you know i think maybe to circle back to michael's comments here too the asian experience has been very very interesting because if you think about the policy responses In terms of sort of sustaining the um corporate revenue and and household income through this it's been very very tepid in asia relative to um certainly the united states uh but also you know europe and other western developed markets and i I think this is gonna i think this is gonna be a a, you know the start of a i don't want to sound too hyperbolic here but a game changer Mm -hmm. for the perceptions of asia as a as a safe haven and so you know we look what that means is, you know, just looking through the crisis, um, Asia was more prepared for this pandemic. Now you could point to SARS and stuff like that, but the fact that they were more prepared. And now what, what's happening is the, the cost of the crisis appears to be much less in Asia than in the West. And as a result, the political uncertainty in the West is now far greater than the political uncertainty in Asia. And, and we haven't even talked about the European Union, which, you know, may or may not survive this crisis and in what form and everything like that um so i think what's neat is that asia and and you know i'm talking about countries like china south korea taiwan and mm-hmm. so forth mm-hmm. that have, have really managed this this um crisis well have have their their beta has been a lot lower than it has in in other prior crises uh, i mean even the the onshore chinese stock market has been remarkably resilient um throughout this and so i think you know, we, you know, your, your question about winners and losers, we, we tend to think along those lines, like what are the next three to five year super trends? And here we are starting in a region with, you know, cheap currencies, um, especially relative to the U.S. dollar, um, relatively cheap stock markets, bond markets that are, you know, not cheap, but not expensive. And, you know, there's there's value to be had. You can create a nicely globally diversified portfolio with, with these asset classes that, you um, you know, have a, have a, a very high prospective return over the next five, 10 years.
0: Yeah. And we, uh, we had some meetings with CBP in Hong Kong and they, they had an interesting little quote was that, you know, they don't think in quarters, they think in quarter centuries. So if right. you are looking to put on a trade, uh, and maybe this is good for, for Michael and your, your portfolio is, do you, how do you size your trades? Uh, when you're, when you're moving around the portfolio, is it, is there any like, min max or is there some sort of uh, quantum that you use for 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 that sizing and then um and maybe where has it gone relatively well and sometimes when oops maybe it didn't didn't work as well as you might have expected
1: yeah it's an interesting question um part of the answer is that you know we want to understand where the biggest risk adjusted expected returns are we obviously want to ensure that know, when we we do allocate, um, we're cognizant that we're not always right. And so we have to make sure that when or whenever we're wrong, the downside that we experience from that is relatively small compared to the upside that over the longer term we gain. Mm -hmm. So a mix for us, it's very much a focus on a mix of, a quantitative foundation to our investment process, a set of models and indicators of uh, ways to forecast expected returns, to understand what the risk environment is, Then um, recognize that you know the, the, the best model is only as good as the person who built it. You know, if you think over the last couple of years what's driven markets it's been uh, tariff wars it's been brexit and now it's been um pandemics and oil supply shocks and i'm pretty sure not one of those events was accurately forecast by more than yeah. a couple of investors right we can count them on the fingers of one hand maximum so that means you need to be able to react and to so to really again focus on. Forget the names. Forget um, this sector or that sector or this asset class or the other asset class. What risk do I own? What risk am I exposed to? And how much of that risk do I really want, given my worldview? I think that has been brought home yet again to uh, to inve- the investment community more broadly.
0: Oh, that's great. Thanks. Um, let's go to Tyler. Um, so how do you approach portfolio management? Um, like, what, What's the process that you go through? Did it change at all during this last crisis? And, and, and I guess how did it perform as well through previous crises that we've seen?
2: Okay, so on portfolio construction, I think... What you emphasize is, and this is where Forest Strong um, really did well, and and we really started to grow after a while, was uh, when the global financial crisis hit. Um, we emphasized this process, and and you know we're we're in an era, as Michael has said, of you know new realities, and there's there's we have this commercial on BNN that says there in the new normal there is no normal. Like what's
0: what, <laughs> The new abnormal,
2: yeah, (laughs) new abnormal, whatever it is, right? So, I mean, we're not necessarily trying to predict those things, and pandemics aren't predictable; they're more black swanish, and there a lot of these things are are not as predictable. So, you're trying to um, build those portfolios. But when we went through the financial crisis, we like our global balance portfolio was basically flat in performance for the year, which you know at the time was was heroic, and 2009 was also a good year too. So we didn't stay bearish. That's awesome, and so. What, what ends up happening is when you start to explain that that's, you do the post-mortem on everything, what ends up happening is that um, you're you're saying that we didn't outperform because we went to cash or we got the timing all right or we went to bonds or whatever in 2008. We outperformed because we recognized that there were certain asset classes that were going to be anti-fragile. And in that case, it was Japanese yen, gold, short-term U.S. fixed income, and all mm-hmm. right. And Asian currencies did did quite well through that era too, because a lot of them were pegged to and remain pegged to the U.S. dollar. So um, you start to talk about the process and the type of you know what what might look like exotic asset classes in the portfolio, and they start to get more and more comfortable with that, and they start to get more comfortable with with the uh, the process. Now, in the latest episode here of March, we you know which was a truly historic financial panic, I think the fastest bear market on record. Um, what we ended up seeing, um, is the same, you know, as we came out of our investment committee discussions, which are quarterly and they're week long, it felt very much like March, 2009, even though I I've said that it's, it's, it's very different in its, its outlook in a sense that there was so much panic going on and there were so many, um, you know, assets being indiscriminately sold off that when you go through that process, again, you just stick to your process. We just, and it's a, it's a blend. It does have um, some quali- quantitative inputs as well. But when we came through that our our matrices and models were recommending to take the highest risk exposure we had since all the way back to March, 2009. The process works and it it tends to work uh, very much like the Pareto principle. You you make 80% of your alpha 20% of the time. Um, And the reason for that is because typically markets are in some sort of equilibrium and there's some trending going on. And so the clients have been, I would say, that the clients that have been with us a long time get our process and and are becoming much more trusting. I think as a general comment the clients have been more forgiving because this pandemic hit the whole world in in many ways. Yes, there's more populism and more nationalism and you know perhaps even to go even extend further more racism as a result of this. But um it it has brought the world together in a, in a sense and I think there's been a you know an element of clients saying okay, well if uh, if you're down this much and you know you couldn't have sidestepped those losses. Now, our our losses, uh, as it stands today, um, are are not not that large at all. Um, certainly not uh, big mistakes of any variety. So, our clients are pretty happy right That's now. That's good to
0: know. How, how are your side, Michael? How are your clients reacting? Like you're you're the buffer, I guess, between them and the portfolio managers that are pulling the trigger on the actual investment decisions. There.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I think. um you know, the the initial reaction was to really take stock of what they owned and how it performed relative to expectations you know we were talking earlier what what things say they're going to do on average and what they actually do when correlations start to all go towards 1 in a in a experience right. that we've just had during the first quarter is often very different So understanding what you thought you owned and and actually what you own has been a big um, reassessment um, of the portfolio. I think now a lot of institutional investors are beginning to pivot towards thinking about what's next. What are the key asset allocation trends that they need to think about? And Two, I, I suggest one is. I think this whole experience, just like 2008 did um, previously, whole experience in 2020 has re-emphasized the importance of liquidity. Mm-hmm. You know, if we look at allocation trends between liquids and illiquids alternatives, so the last five or 10 years, I think it, that allocation has been skewed heavily in terms of or in favor of illiquids. So I, I think... There'll be a, a, a rebalance towards liquidity, at least to some extent. The other one, and I think Tyler touched on this as well, is you know what's the role of fixed income going forward? The opportunity for income, the opportunity for capital um, appreciation, is relatively limited. So we need to source those um, those characteristics from other asset classes
0: well uh thanks michael thanks tyler for uh for your views on this and and uh the way you're looking at the world it's, it's pretty interesting how we can see the same world and have uh, different lenses and have uh slightly different ideas on, on where things are going but also some some pretty cool similarities so uh, we look forward to uh having you in another podcast again sometime soon and uh just thank you once again
2: awesome to be here james thanks so much
0: yeah always a pleasure